Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Renewables. I'm your host, David Smart, Senior Vice President of Sales at Biostar Renewables. And welcome back to part two of our 2020 uh, Super 6 Organic Fertilizer Field Trials with Chief Agronomist Alan Philo. Alan, thank you for being back on the show. It's good to be here again. We're we're excited to dig in. Really appreciated your time and uh, going through the results from the 2020 field trials in last episode. If you missed that, back up one episode, go listen to the field trials. Um, There's a presentation on there as well that you can follow along uh, if you go and find us on YouTube. So um, we're going to dive in a little bit deeper, though, today. There was a lot of information there. We went through it kind of quickly because there's there's so much to cover. Uh, gonna dive in a little bit deeper and talk about you know the crop trials, but also um, some of the other solutions that we provide and some of the other problems we solve rel- related to manure uh, manure management um, and soil health and other topics like that. Um, so, Alan. Uh, Thanks again for being back. And I just want to start with the crop trials. Um, We had some questions come in from users. Thank you to everyone who attended our sneak peek uh, webinar and asked questions. Really appreciate that. Uh, One of the questions that popped up was how how many years of trials have you completed and how many do you need to do going forward? Uh, I think you have maybe one year in certain crops, two years in other crops. So what's typical? How many have you completed and, and how many do you expect to complete going forward? So typically we want to do three years on a given crop. And the reason for that is that helps to even out the different weather events that are going to occur within a single growing season. Um, remember, that's one of the when you're thinking about crop trials, you're trying to control variables and uh, no matter how hard we seem to have tried, we can't figure out how to control the weather. So the, one of the ways that you get around that is to do these trials for, multi, for multiple years. So three years is usually what uh, we shoot for. We've done um, three years of crop of corn trials if you were to go back and count the farmer trials but I really like to even make it that this is the trials that we've done that are from third-party research firms. So that what you're doing is, is controlled small plot experiments where you make sure that you're gonna get good statistical methodologies in place as well. So we are actually, uh, we should be getting data back um, this winter for the third year of corn trials, which will wrap that up. We're gonna go into our second year of wheat trials and our second year of vegetable trials. Um, that was a little bit, uh, that might seem strange to some people if you've been paying attention because our first uh, vegetable trials were done between 2019 and 2020, but because of COVID, we weren't able to actually have those done uh, this last year due, due to labor shortages. So we've had to skip a year, but we're going to be restarting some of those. I actually would have to go through and carefully count the number of trials that we've completed. 
I know that in one year alone, we completed something like 11 different corn trials um, all the way from North or South Dakota to Tennessee. So that was pretty extensive. Um, and I would say that I'm hoping that we will have all of our trialing wrapped up within um, another two years, which is uh, probably going to, the one that's gonna be taking the time is rice. Um, I think that we're gonna be able to do also do our second trial of rice this next year, but we might have to wait another year. So uh, I would actually pin 2023 as the last year of trial results. And talk a little bit more about some of the partners that we're, we're utilizing from a third party standpoint. Uh, let's just give them a little bit of love. Some of the partners that we've been executing these trials with. Sure. So um, here in Wisconsin, we've been using uh, Dr. Tim uh, Maloney at, um, and you know what, I don't have the name of his firm right in front of me, but maybe we can attach that in the notes uh, to this particular. Absolutely. Podcast. Yep. And he's, he's been doing this for like 20 years. Um, he, he's, his farm is really organized. It's a really nice place to go visit. Um, you can, we can pop, I can pop over there and be there in about an hour and a half to take a look at how the trials are doing and to consult with him. We're going to be doing wheat trials again with him. And then down for the vegetable trials, we've been going mainly to a, a company called RD for Ag, which is Dr. Steve West in Yuma, Arizona. They have a lot of really uh, good capabilities to do the vegetable trials and to do the vegetable trials in the environment where most of these vegetables are grown. There are places I could go in the Midwest to do vegetable trials, but uh, you want to center your trials in the place where the weather conditions and the soil types and everything are as much like as the major markets as possible. So that's where we'll be doing spinach, celery, broccoli, uh, and maybe spring mix again uh, this upcoming year. Excellent. Yeah, I think you mentioned a couple of things that I think are particularly interesting. One is I think a lot of people associate uh, climate, which, you know, soil quality is obviously has something to do with climate, but, um, but I, that was one of my questions that you sort of answered. How important is it to do certain trials in certain regions? Um, and I think sort of looking at the whole, um, I think, you know, agronomic suitability of a climate, including soil is really interesting. And we're going to get into that here in a little bit later um, about Super 6, our product and how it promotes uh, soil health and and sort of closes uh, nutrient loops in our ag system, which was something that you mentioned in episode one that I, I want to dig in on a little bit. That a lot of our trials, uh, you're actually trialing our product with other types of product. And you have a lot of experience in your career, um, you know, prior to and now at Biostar helping develop complete fertility plans. So talk a little bit about the importance of trialing and mixing our product with other products in these trials. Yeah, so there's kind of two stages or two parts uh, to that. The first thing I'll say is that when you're looking at organic agriculture, very rarely are you looking at one product acting alone. Um, you're always going to be, and I think I mentioned this in, in, the, in that trial podcast, that trial webinar, that <clears throat> what you're usually working, what you're always working with in an organic system is actually the biology in the soil. 
they are what is releasing the nutrients, um, what from your base fertility applications or usually from your product into the soil. And there's different ways that we can work with that. When we're mixing our product with other products, what we're usually trying to do is make that product more suitable and more interesting to biology so that they're going to go and utilize that product in ways just beyond the strict nutrient uh, percentage that's in that's in our product. So basically they're going to they're going to leverage it up, right? They're they're going to take that they're going to take that uh, nitrogen, they're going to leverage it up, use it to build more of their uh, their bodies and their populations and turn around and eat more of whatever the base fertility application is. Our base fertility applications that we've done this on, uh, we've done some things where the base fertility application is products like feather meal, but usually we like to, um, the most commonly used base fertility product is really just manure, uh, some sort of dehydrated, heat treated manure that, um, and the reason they heat treated is basically to just um, destroy any pathogens that are uh, inside the manure, but it does change some of the physical characteristics of it. Um, but we're, we're running the trial with that because that's typically just what people need to do to get their base fertility application. It's important to note that with our products, with pretty much any liquid product that you're going to, going to encounter in organics, those products are not suitable to somehow provide like a like all of the, even the nitrogen for a crop for the entire year on a number of levels. It's not really suitable in the way that the product is, is built, but it's also not really uh, suitable in terms of cost. You know, these, the liquid products are at a higher price point because they, there's a lot of infrastructure and a lot of capital investment that goes into making them and a lot of science that's gone into making them. And what we're always trying to do with that, again, is leverage up the less expensive base fertility inputs like manures. That's a perfect segue because I, I wanted to talk about manure on this episode. Um, and I also wanted to talk about, you know, sort of the other services that, that you're able to provide to farmers with respect to fertility planning um, and, and um, other services that you're able to provide to RNG developers also, which is kind of interesting. And we'll get to that later, but with respect to manure, um, there's a lot of manure out there. There's a lot of issues and expenses related to manure handling. Talk a little bit now, um, especially for folks who are maybe looking at this from a, a higher level, just some of the kind of what are farmers doing with this manure now? What are some of the pitfalls that we know uh, from land applying this? Because you're, you're talking about a lot of manure and applying it all over the place. Talk a little bit about that. What do they do with it now? And what are the pitfalls of, of sort of how most people handle the, the manure now? So yeah, before, before I start that, I think I wanna say unequivocally that manure is not a bad thing. Um, the problem is always when you get too much manure in the wrong place. And that is what we're seeing in agriculture today. This doesn't have to do anything. I mean, farmers make decisions, companies make decisions about the, how they organize their companies, but they're always doing it within the context of the system. And farmers are operating within kind of the contextual environment 
of different subsidy programs, different programs that we have um, in government and the national level. And that is continually pushing uh, animal agriculture into uh, more and more uh, tightly spaced centers. Um, a lot of these, you can end up with, with a lot of animals in one location. You know, if you were to go look at the average size of a dairy, for instance, over the past 50 to 70 years in Wisconsin, you would see that, you know, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, these, these numbers aren't perfectly accurate, but might've been 30 cows. And now it's like, you know, the, the upper limit is like 5,000. Hmm. So, you know, if you think about a lot of small farms dotting the landscape, all with 30 cows, you can see that there's probably not a whole lot of problem with manure in, in that sense. But when I talk about putting 5,000 cows in one spot, you know, and maybe like what amounts to two acres of barns, that's the equivalent of a 500,000 person city on two acres. You know, that's an incredibly dense population. And now this manure, which on its own, what it's spread out in the environment, um, like it used to be, is not hazardous when it's all concentrated at one point. Now it becomes a hazardous problem. Um, it becomes, it can become a problem in terms of odor. It can become a problem in terms of storage. Uh, if you have large amounts of manure like that, they break containment. You can damage riparian systems. So that's like stream systems and water bodies. Um, and that's even before we get to like, well, then now how do we apply it to the land? So it's, it's in those situations, the, what's happening is that, um, we're concentrating those animals in that spot because a lot of the infrastructure that goes into building a farm is like that base farm infrastructure in terms of uh, the facilities for keeping the animals, the facilities for milking the animals, uh, concentrating all of these kind of like high cost farm items in one spot to service as many cows as possible. And then it's also fairly easy to bring in the agricultural goods that you're gonna need uh, from a surrounding land base to that location it's just sort of it's part of what the cost of raising those animals is but then what's happened over time is that manure regulation didn't really catch up with that it kind of got caught flat-footed and so what started happening is there was over application of manures on land surrounding these facilities and what happens is that uh, there are certain things that get concentrated in in the manures at higher rates than they're, than they're usually concentrated um, on the landscape and, and that where they're not taken off by crops at the same rate as they're being applied if you're using manures. The most common is phosphorus. Um, my guess is that somewhere someone has, if you're listening to this podcast, you have heard about phosphorus issues damaging water bodies. One of the most... Um, Biggest examples of that is the uh, algae blooms that they've had in Lake Erie um, on the on the south side of Lake Erie, northern Ohio. And this is coming from really high phosphorus soils building up over time. Those soils washing into water bodies and those water bodies making their way into Lake Erie. It creates a situation where there's a lot of phosphorus in the water, which is a limiting factor for my for algae growth. And then the algae takes off and blooms. And then, then you get weird things like you can create hypoxic conditions because the microbes, the algae, these different things growing can um, start growing at a rate faster than oxygen 
can diffuse in and out of water. So it can suck all the oxygen out of water. And then you can get things like fish die off because aquatic organisms relying on the oxygen in that water don't have the oxygen and they suffocate, right? So there's a lot of ways in which these manure problems make their waves literally farther downstream and are affecting riparian water systems uh, farther downstream. So, um, and, and part of that just uh, is also related to, for instance, here in Wisconsin, we have a, another problem up in the northeast corner of something called karst soils. So these are fairly thin soils that go to bedrock. And so what's happening is that you can both get this runoff from the top, but occasionally you can also get, you know, other, it might not be phosphorus in this case, but you can get nitrate pollutants or E. coli pollutants and things like this going down through the soil. It's getting into people's well water. It's, uh, you know, which is having a direct impact on people's health. So then the, the, the question becomes, well, what kind of solutions do you have for these sorts of problems? Well, one of the solutions is to truck the manure farther away and to get it on soils that um, are able to take these kinds of uh, manure applications. But there's a problem with that, which is that water or uh, manure is, has a, a huge amount of water in it, right? Because when we talk about manure, you're not just talking about like a cow patty, you're also talking about all of the urine um, and all of the very liquid feces that is created in these different environments. Could be a swine facility too, um, could be a chicken facility. Any of these facilities, they have very similar issues. So you, you end up with a lot more water in that end product than you do in the agricultural feedstocks than you were bringing in the first place. That's why it's economic to truck those feedstocks into the farm, but it becomes very uneconomic to try to transport this manure away. You can get, um, and it doesn't sound like a lot when I say this, right? It's like, well, you might spend two cents per gallon just moving this manure farther away or four cents per gallon until you start calculating out just how much manure one of these cows makes, which I think can be, uh, you know, even if we went with a, like a low end estimate of like 20 gallons per day of manure, if I have 5,000 cows in the spot, that's, what is that? 100,000 gallons per day? I mean, it's just a ridiculous amount of manure. And then you can see that if I'm having to truck that away every day at two cents per gallon, I am I now suddenly have this big line item in my budget that is a problem. Sure. So that's yeah. not necessarily necessarily an economic solution. So more and more, what's happened is that we've tried to come up with ways to reduce the volume of those things that might need, need to be moved around, and also to separate out the different nutrients from one another, because the different nutrients end up in different parts of the manure as you separate different parts of the manure out. So one thing that you can do to reduce volume is you can run those manures through an anaerobic digester. That has the added benefit, of course, of producing uh, methane, which is a carbon neutral. If it's biomethane, it's a carbon neutral uh, energy source. And you can clean that up and put it straight into the energy pipeline. So that's a huge benefit. But that only does about a 30, at most, about a 30% reduction in volume. And you still have all this water that's going to come out of that. Uh, digester. So then what we're going to end up doing is, is uh, start to basically separate the solids from the water. But then in the end, what you end up with is a water that still isn't necessarily, necessarily suitable 
for direct land application because it has a high nutrient content, right? And, and that's where Super 6 and these different technologies come in is that they're able to um, remove what is the most expensive thing to transport around and what has the most value um, at the actual location where you're removing it, which is, can you get the water back to clean water? I mean, you could say that we're a, I like to say to people, like, I can tell you that we're a uh, fertilizer producing company, but I could also just tell you that we're a water cleanup company. You know, if we have a hundred thousand gallons of manure. Waste management company. Waste management. <laughs> we can make 78,000 gallons of potable water, you know, from that manure and 1200 gallons of fertilizer. Now right. say that again, because I interrupted you. So say that statistic again, 100,000 coming in. It's like 100,000 gallons of manure comes in. We make 78,000 gallons of, of clean water and we make 1,200 gallons of manure. And then you have some, so, uh, I mean, of fertilizer. And then you have some solids in between that also still have other things that we can potentially do with them. So that's how you can really start to solve these problems is to get the water clean and then get the nutrient dense solids or liquids into forms that can be transported away from these farms and back out into um, the, the agricultural landscape. And that's where we really get into, you know, like closing nutrient loops and things like that. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because talk a little bit about some of the benefits of super six besides, you know, this waste management issue that is, absolutely a, a growing issue. You're seeing states across the country uh, start to ban organic waste from being landfilled, and there's penalties that are coming down the chute with that, and then there's a, a big need, obviously, for qualified recycling centers. So, so the waste management piece is huge, uh, but talk a little bit about what makes Super 6 different when you close that loop and put it back into the agricultural system, right? So how, how do the crops react differently to our product uh, as opposed to just land applying uh, manure? So you, when you land apply, you know, when you're land applying manures, especially for organic agriculture, while those manures do have a, a certain amount, if you're going to apply them raw, let's start with that. If you're going to apply them raw, they do have certain uh, a certain amount of the nutrients in them are plant available right away. But then there's also problems with the fact that those manures contain a lot of microbial contaminants like E. coli and salmonella. So in organic agriculture, there are restrictions on how uh, close to harvest, especially if it's something someone, uh, some human is going to eat, how close to harvest you can apply those. And it's typically 120 days from harvest. So if you think like for short run crops, like vegetable crops, spinach, uh, even, you know, broccoli, which is one of the longer run um, organic uh, field crop, uh, vegetable crops, you're going to have to apply that manure at least a month before you would even start planting. And in some cases, two or three months before you would start planting. Well, in that time period, almost all of those soluble nutrients that would be available would wash away, right? Mm -hmm. Now there's other things that you can do to kind of help with that. You could plant a cover crop on top of it and turn the cover crop in. But in that case, what's happening again is you're taking all of the soluble nutrients and you're tying them up into some plant form. 
And so you can't get the benefits of those soluble nutrients into your plants right away. And you're, you are going to be relying on uh, mi microbial activity in the soil to break down whatever is either left of the solids or whatever uh, green manure crop you put on to suck up those soluble nutrients. The other option is to take those manures and to you know treat them in some way. So that could be like a heat treatment, like I talked about. Uh, that raises the cost of the manure, obviously, because you're handling it, you're expending energy to dry it. And so that becomes a more expensive product. Um, and then you're still in this situation where when you dry it, uh, usually uh, often many of the most uh, ammonium, for instance, what we often deal with is very volatile. When you heat it, it disappears in, in the mm -hmm. steam as, as it goes through the drying process. So often you're losing nutrients out of the manure when you do that. What nutrients are left, again, have to go through the microbial cycle. Uh, and then, or you could make compost out of it, right? Com everybody thinks compost is great. Compost is really good stuff. But again, there's a lot of work that goes into compost. So you kind of end up with these same things again. Well, it's going to, you know, cost more because it takes a lot of handling to make a really good compost product. You do lose certain, certain nutrients in the composting process. And again, you're going to be relying on microbial breakdown to release all those nutrients into this into the soil environment. So what happens with Super Six is uh, first from just an environmental side, we're not letting these nutrients escape back into the environment, um, where some of them can become even air pollutants. Um, ammonium, if when it volatilizes as ammonia into the atmosphere, actually helps create uh, small. Um, small microparticle uh, pollution. Uh, interestingly enough, COVID, um, which for the most part has not been very beneficial, has allowed us to see this really clearly. There was a study that came out around Milan, Italy, where uh, during the shutdown, you know, air pollution kind of just went away, right? But they noticed that in this one section around Milan, uh, air pollution levels were still really high. And it turned out that it was all from land applied manure and the ammonium ammonia that was volatilizing from the land applied manure and making this really small particulate uh, air pollution. So, you know, there, there are issues even with that escaping the environment. So first of all, we're capturing those things. We're not allowing that to happen. But then when it gets into the soils, you know, we can look at it from a plant perspective and we can look at it from the soils perspective. Now, from a plant perspective, like on a short-run crop, um, we can, uh, often what's done is that in order to get enough nutrients breaking down fast enough to supply that crop uh, with, with enough nitrogen and potassium and things, you get massive over-application of manures or compost in that system. That both raises the cost of what is being produced because you're paying for that large application, and it also potentially also has environmental uh, degradation benefits because that manure, even though uh, you, it might be necessary for, for that crop right there, right, right then, it's going to start then breaking down faster and faster as it goes through that process. And the next crop or that particular crop may not be able to even pick up all, that, all those nutrients and you can get pollution of water bodies uh, because those nutrients now are coming out of that manure, that compost too fast to be picked up by the plants. Mm -hmm. 
and they get into the water. So when you introduce Super 6 into that, you can get the benefit of it, first of all, feeding the plant in that case, that does happen. But even more so, you can increase the amount of microbial activity going on to break down those bulk, bulk applications. So you can cut down on those applications, um, reducing the danger of those, those bulk applications become a, a pollutant, right? And also reducing the total overall cost uh, to, to the growing of that crop. So that's one of those ways where getting that, getting that ammonium you know, is, is I, how many benefits did I name there? I mean, it was at least yeah. three or four just environmental benefits before we ever got to the point where, by the way, it made a better crop, you know? So there's a lot, there, there's a lot to stacking all of these benefits on top of each other. Yeah, well, and it's, uh, you know, the product in so many different ways. We talk about closing the loop. We should probably have a graphic up here that shows the loop, uh, which we will work on. But, um, you know, you're really talking about promoting and creating healthier soils um, that are going to, you know, in turn produce good, healthy crops for future generations. One of the things you've mentioned to me in the past was, you know, you've seen a lot more flooding and, you know, a lot of uh, naturally occurring weather disasters. And, and there's a lot of different reasons that fires are happening out west and floodings happening and, and hurricanes and everything like that. But I had never thought about um, the ability of the soil to absorb water and needing healthy soil to be able to do that. And that's something that you mentioned to me a couple episodes that that has kind of stuck with me and I and I think about all the time um, because you you're seeing all this flooding in the Midwest and well why is that happening and you know it's not because there's a giant hurricane right there um, it, it's deeper rooted than that and so I think um, I, I actually am thinking live on this on this podcast we are going to develop a closed nutrient loop graph that we will find a place to feature and make sure that anyone who listened to this episode is able to see. Um, but, but there's so many different components to this from soil health and, and producing healthy crops all the way, like you said, to manure management and, and um, you know, mitigating what we're landfilling and paying attention uh, to these landfill diversion laws, because I think they're going to become more and more important. We talk a lot about landfill capacity on our website and talk about, um, you know, how quickly we're running out of landfill capacity. We used to ship a lot of our trash to China. We're not doing that anymore. You know, we're, some folks estimate inside of 15 years of, of landfill capacity uh, remaining in this country. So obviously this helps to solve that problem as well. Um, you know, from a manure standpoint, but also, you know, some of our digesters are using uh, food waste as well. That's being, yeah. being diverted from landfill. So and, and um, it's all, to, please. To, to kind of build on that, you know, that's one of the places where like, if you want to talk about a broken nutrient loop, that's one of the biggest ones. When we're putting nutrients onto crops and then taking those, those crops and using them as, as humans, um, and then take, you know, even if you think about like, if you get a fresh cabbage, you know, and you bring it into your house, how much of that cabbage do you peel away? 
before you would ever get to the part of the cabbage you would eat, right? You might sure. only eat, you know, 60% of the cabbage that even brought in. And before sure. that, I'm going to tell you, there was probably another 50% of the cabbage that got trimmed off somewhere else. <laughs> right. 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 So, so that it looked pretty enough for you to buy, right? That's, that's correct. And so you have both at that point, you have both pre-consumer and post-consumer food waste that um, for, you know, the last century, we've just been taking and we throw it in the garbage and it goes into the garbage and it goes into the landfill where it creates all sorts of problems, but also all of the nutrients that were trapped in that are just gone. We don't have any ability to take them and put them back onto a field. And what's yeah. interesting about that too, is those took energy to produce. Those don't come from nowhere, you know, uh, sure. often they're mined. Potassium is a is often a mined substance, or uh, and and in the, on the conventional side, um, you know we're actively burning natural gas to fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere, and when that nitrogen and you know which is there's an actual carbon footprint now to that nitrogen in that cabbage that we're talking about, and the last thing we want to do is then just throw that nitrogen into a landfill, so we want to be able to make sure that that nitrogen ends up back in some usable form to go back into a cabbage again. There's no reason for it to escape into the environment or into a groundwater system where it becomes a pollutant. So there's actual like carbon footprint, um, uh, you know, reductions when we're talking about these uh, technologies too. And that goes oh, even absolutely. bigger. That goes even bigger if we want to talk about some of the other capabilities that that we're developing with uh, with other other firms to do even more nutrient uh, recovery technologies. Yeah, I actually think that's a good segue. I just wanted to direct people. We have some resources on our website uh, and some really interesting statistics that we pulled from from various places. Uh, and this one always amazes me. In 2017, the U.S. generated 260 million tons of municipal solid waste, 70% of which uh, was organic materials, which I just find fascinating. Uh, and then this one, 30% of all food produced is wasted, which equals about two, almost 2 billion tons per year of food waste. Uh, and wasted food accounts for $172 billion in wasted water, uh, if you consider the fact that the water that it took to grow that food that was then wasted was wasted, uh, that actually comes out to nearly 25% of our water supply in this country, which is just amazing to think about. So, uh, but, but I do want you to quickly touch on some of the things you're doing with other folks in our space. We're obviously out developing renewable gas projects, and um, there's a market in California called the LCFS market that that most of these types of projects are selling their gas into i think there's over 400 projects uh current or planned so there's a lot of developers in our space but it, touch quickly you, you alluded to it on some of the things uh if you're listening to this and you're an rng developer and you're you know kind of trying to figure out the back end you know of the plant and what to do with kind of what's left over talk a little bit about some of the services and some of the help you can provide to uh, folks like that? Yeah, I think that uh, when people first started getting into the uh, LCFS market, you know, there was a there was a temptation to just look at everything that came out of the back end of those anaerobic digester processes as like, well, that's just waste. 
you know, uh, we've got what we wanted out of this and that's, this is just waste. But I think more and more there's the recognition that that is not waste, that those, there's, there's value in what is coming out of that, especially if we can figure out ways, uh, as I've alluded to, to, to basically fractionate out or capture nutrients in different ways. So, you know, for our process, we can capture most of the nitrogen and the potassium that is leaving into effluent water. At the, at the back side of that. But then there's other things that can be captured in other ways. There's a lot of phosphorus that at different points in that can be extracted with different nutrient extraction technologies. Now these don't necessarily go into organic agriculture, but they have value uh, inside conventional agriculture. Uh, most people have heard at some point, you know, whether they think it's true or not of a concept called peak oil, right? And, uh, but there's fairly large agreement in the agricultural community that we have passed something called peak phosphorus, which uh, phosphorus is one of the, is a major uh, macro necessary nutrient for growing crops. And there is a um, finite supply of good phosphorus bearing rocks in the world that you can then process to make phosphorus fertilizers. So, uh, and phosphorus is also one of the main issues that you get um, with many of the, the land applications of manure that we discussed earlier. So there's other technologies like struvite or brushite extraction technologies that uh, we're working presently with other uh, firms and other engineers, both uh, to make sure that we have markets, uh, places where the, we, can, we can take these products and they have value in the market and uh, they're easily monetizable. And then also in just having engineering solutions to have different options to basically process waste streams in multiple ways. And then the, another one that, that uh, we've been looking at a lot lately and that uh, we're developing capabilities for is, is biochar. Um, it's, it's interesting to note that there, traditionally biochar has a number of issues uh, with it in terms of its monetizability and as a, as a product and being able to get back what the investment is to make it, um, you, you know, on large scales. But as, as carbon markets have developed, uh, people are recognizing that when you make biochar, uh, you're actually stabilizing the carbons. You're truly stabilizing these carbons into forms where they're stable for hundreds, thousands, uh, possibly tens of thousands of years. And so as an actual carbon reduction solution, and it provides real benefit to soils um, in terms of water storage capacity and, and nutrient storage capacity. And you know the, the problem with, with things like struvite and brushite and, um, and biochar in the past have been that there are basically like better, cheaper alternatives um, in terms of what you could apply in order to get a crop yield difference right away. But as, but as we've gained a lot more understanding and how those kinds of things, basically what happens often is agriculture is sort of externalizing these costs. We're, we're purchasing a cheap input. We put it on our fields. We put it on our fields in excess. It runs off of our fields and it can create issues for surrounding communities. That's like the definition of an externalized cost. Um, we're having to figure out how to re-internalize those costs. And when we re-internalize those costs, what it does is it creates value for products that before were created waste products, like the products I've talked about. And so, you know, for the carbon, people are now seeing that 
hey, this is a way of stabilizing carbon. I'll buy a carbon credit on that. So there's there are becoming ways in which the carbon that that um, biochar now has a value, a base value before it ever even gets sold into an agricultural community, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that allows the price to come down for the farmer because society is valuing it on a different level. Same things for struvite and brushite, um, all of these different technologies. So we feel that, um, and, and, you know, and we're, we're, we're starting to work and offer this, these services to develop to other developers, not, not just for our own purposes, that the more of these nutrient capture and uh, nutrient recycling technologies that we can put together with the energy you know, capture technologies, the more, you know, back to that closed loop idea, the more we can close these loops, um, the less energy we need to expend, you know, mining phosphorus in Morocco um, or mining potassium in Russia. And, and you know, there's, there's even a certain amount of, uh, you know, people wanted more domestic oil production. So we're, we're less reliant on that um, uh, globally. And you can say the same thing about a lot of these nutrients, so. It's really interesting, Alan. You're you're doing a great job, and we we really appreciate you taking the time to come on and and do these podcasts with us and educate our listeners. I know a lot of the folks listening are folks that follow you closely, uh, but we also have you know folks from sort of all different uh, backgrounds and in all different industries listening. And I think you do a great job of of bridging the gap, um, you know, between the scientific piece of it and sort of helping us everyday folk, if you will, really understand the importance of, of Super 6 product, yes, but also, you know, this bigger picture of how are we handling waste and how are we helping the ag community uh, continue to become more sustainable. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there, I think, that it's really easy to catch on social media or find uh, who kind of want to act like farmers aren't sustainable or aren't, you know, doing things to improve um, their waste management practices or sustainability. And I think when you really go and, and look at it, that couldn't be further from the truth. I think farmers um, are some of the most sustainable people I know every single thing that enters into their farming system, you know, they don't want to see waste. They want to figure out how can I maximize the nutrients or maximize the value of everything and waste as little as possible. Um, so I really appreciate all the work you're doing with, with farmers across the country and, and developing this market and developing this product and appreciate your time here today. Is there anything else before we close off uh, that you want to touch on? related to the 2020 field trials or any of the important topics we discussed here today? Oh boy, I think at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm about it. Uh, is, that, uh, is that for phase three, episode three? For phase three, <laughs> let's come back in a month and, and uh, we'll have more things to talk about or in a couple of months. So. Sure, well, if anybody has questions who's listening to this episode, please do not hesitate uh, to reach out you can find Alan, I think, on LinkedIn. Um, I know you can find contact info on our team on our website, biostarrenewables.com. We also have a lot of great resources, including the 2020 field trials uh, as a PDF, where you can go and read through all the different results. 
And certainly if you have questions about anything you heard on the podcast today or in reading that, or if you need to backtrack and go listen to the the first episode from this two-part series, uh, we welcome your questions and um, we'll make sure we get those to Alan and, and get those answered. If anything uh, that you heard is interesting, Alan, I'm gonna I'm gonna shell out your email address. Uh, it's a philo, a p h i l o at biostarrenewables.com, uh, and you can reach out to Alan directly, or of course contact us through our website. We're gonna wrap it up. That is uh, episode two of Biostar's 2020 Super Six Organic Fertilizer Field Trials with our chief agronomist Alan Philo. Alan, it's always a pleasure having you on the show and we'll look forward to having you back soon. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Fun to be Take here. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. 